0: We're going back to Series 3 of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson. Series 3 attended to the fables of my namesake, Robert Louis Stevenson. I enjoyed reading and discussing them, and I've had many grateful responses from others who have enjoyed listening to the podcasts. But, But there was one fable that never got included in our series of podcasts, The Clockmaker, I want to redress that omission today and read and discuss this this odd, fascinating story. The Clockmaker is one of the two fables that did not get included in the printed volume of fables, either because it was deemed not fitting, or because the manuscript had been separated from the others and was lost, or, or some other reason. And it was not published until the 21st century. The Clockmaker is a complicated satire on the pretensions of human thinking to discover a final and truthful explanation of the way the universe works. But like all of Stevenson's satires, it can also be felt as a compassionate and and humorous view of human weakness. It's a fairly long fable and will probably need some explanation. The plot is simple, taking place on two levels, the world of humans and the world of the microbes. On the human level, the maid, whose job it is to clean the rooms of the house, has been careless and has allowed a carafe of water to sit out on a table for a month. During that time, a colony of microbes, an has formed and has passed through several generations, developing a complex culture, echoing in many ways the history of European culture. We return to the human level in the final paragraph, when someone enters the room to wind the clock, sees the water sitting on the table, and being thirsty, drinks it, microbes and all. The germs make him ill, and his doctor, believing that it was the city water supply that was tainted, orders the water in that whole section of the city to be inspected and cleaned. The philosophical and religious history of the animacular civilization is hard to follow and needs to be paraphrased here. The race of the animaculi came into being in the stagnant water neglected by the maid. Given the brief lifespan of these microbes, many generations would have come and gone in the month the water was sitting there. Their delight in astronomy leads them to observe as carefully as they can the workings of the world beyond the carafe they are living in, and to draw certain conclusions from the patterns they observe, conclusions that seem logical to them, but that we, knowing the nature of the world outside the carafe, know to be completely mistaken. The solar year for these animaculae would be the length of time it took the sun to move across a window since there were two windows in the room there would be a kind of double solar year one measuring the sun's appearance in the east window the other in the southern window sometimes the sun would be seen in both windows at once hence the second mingling with the first after this would be an interval of darkness our nighttime, which for the animaculi would encompass several generations so that the appearance of the sun would become only a memory, a tradition, not an experience. Over time, a brilliant animacule, the equivalent of Isaac Newton, developed what was called the room theory. The theory was in parts erroneous, since it held that the whole world outside the carafe was filled with water, and that the walls and the tablecloth were composed of the same material. But in other respects, especially the positions of all the visible objects, the carafe, table, walls, ornaments, clock, in these other respects, the room theory was correct. In other words, the facts were for the most part correct, and everyone could accept them. The problem arose, however, in trying to explain the meaning of these facts. The philosopher built his interpretation of the facts upon the ancient legends developed many generations earlier when, so the legend said, the oblong yellow space on the wall, that is, the door to the room, opened out and a giant form appeared, moving about the room for some generations, which might be, in our terms, a few hours or even a few minutes. This form was accompanied by a mysterious bright light, that would be a candle or a lamp, and after a time there was a terrible noise, with reverberations shaking the whole room, after which that giant form and its light was no more. That is, the man, having wound the clock, had gone out and pulled the door shut with a bang. These events were recorded by respectable historians. But the untutored turned these historical reports into a mythic story, in which a giant, an carrying the sun in his claw, would regularly come through the wall, swim through the water outside the carafe, do something to the clock, and disappear. The philosopher adapted this myth to explain the variations of light, transferring that light-bearing giant outside the room, moving from one window to the other, creating the solar years. Now the centre of this interpretation was the clock. The facts had been ascertained. The pendulum, the hands on the dial and the chimes had been observed and measured and understood to follow a roughly regular pattern. The regularity led to a theory or belief that there must be an intelligent being who ordered the whole world, but was revealed most clearly in the clock's orderliness, comparable perhaps to the belief that the Bible reveals the authentic word of God. Those who believed in the clockmaker as the creator of the world came to be known as clockmakerists. The great philosopher was a clockmakerist, and his guesses formed the basis of a new religion, which saw the colossus of the legend, the sun, and the clock as a unity, a kind of trinity. Another party arose, however, which decried these beliefs as animaculomorphism, comparable to anthropomorphism, creating a god in a human image. Their arguments were based on the premise that in fact there was no water outside the carafe, comparable to the belief that there's nothing beyond the material life observable by our senses. Without water, how could anything live? And so how could this clockmaker exist in a world beyond a carafe? Or if for some reason the clockmaker was able to exist in a world without water, why did he not communicate with his people more clearly than just those few markings on the face of the clock? If such a clockmaker existed, then (laughs) he he must be a frivolous and malignant wretch, wishing to torment the confused animaculae. Now this party of A-clockmakerists, atheists, created poetry to celebrate their views, though, like the church condemning heretics to death, the more extreme A-clockmakerists were punished with death. This is the state of affairs, as the community awaited the seventh double solar year, when the sun would return. Would the reappearance of the sun match the pattern of the hands of the clock? No, it turned out, the match was not perfect, but it was not far off. In our terms, they're wondering whether the sun would reappear at the same time as it did when it last appeared. As we know the sun would appear one or two minutes earlier or later than it had the day before. Hence the slight discrepancy. Several treatises were produced to show that the near-regularity of the sun and the clock was enough to vindicate the faith in the clockmaker god. On the other hand, the A-clockmakerists argued that the discrepancy proved that there is no clockmaker and no perfect order to the universe. The second view began to prevail, just as agnostic or atheist views began to spread in the 19th century. The idea of a clockmaker and the clock itself became a theme for jesters. Later on, this same day, the man entered the room to wind the eight day clock. To the world of these microbes, this was a divine revelation, a kind of apocalypse. The clockmaker did exist. A universal, religious revival erupted, and their world was filled with believers. But if the apocalypse, in our biblical terms, heralds the end of the world, so it did for these animacule. For at the moment the man, thirsty from last night's beer, spotted the carafe and drank the water, the world of the microscopic creatures in the water came to an end. The clockmaker. The carafe stood on a table in the midst of the room. For near a week no one had passed the door. The maid was careless, and since a month the water stood unchanged. The leading race of animaculae had thus attained a great antiquity and were far advanced in scientific studies. Their chief delight was in astronomy. Philosophers passed their days in the contemplation of the heavenly bodies. Society pleased itself in the discussion of competing theories. Two windows, one looking to the east and one to the south, gave them two solar years of different length, the second mingling with the first, the first succeeding again to the second after an interval of darkness. Many generations rose and perished in the night. The tradition of a sun grew faint, so that pessimists despaired of its return, and the moon, which was then at the full, deceived some of the wisest. It was not till the sixth long solar year that an animacule of unrivaled intellect arose, overthrew former science, and bequeathed a heritage of disputation. His hypothesis may be called the room theory. It was in parts erroneous. The room was not filled with drinking water, neither were its walls of the same substance as the tablecloth. But in most points, the theory accorded rudely with the facts, and its author had calculated the relative position of the carafe, the table, the walls, the chimney-piece ornaments, and the eight-day clock to the millionth place of decimals. For his instruments and methods were exquisitely fine. So far, his merits were recognized by the most sceptical. But the philosopher was a man of a devout, obedient mind, and he had chosen to accept and build upon a legend of the race. In the early days, before science had arisen, the oblong yellow space on the north wall was said to have opened, and an object, huge beyond thought, to have appeared, and for some generations moved visibly in space. A light, according to some, brighter than the sun, according to others, scarce brighter than the moon, accompanied the meteor in its orbit. The craft was shaken the while by thunderclaps and unaccountable convulsions. The sides of heaven were heard to crepitate, and a final detonation signalised the moment of disappearance. And when Animacule had recovered from the shock, the yellow oblong space on the north wall was seen to have resumed its natural appearance. Such was the report of grave and critical historians. In the mouths of the untutored it it ran otherwise. In the old cannibal days, said they, an anemacule of unheard of bigness came through the wall. He had the sun in one claw. The movement of his swimming shook the whole carafe, and before going out again, he did something to the clock. To the amazement of society, it was this popular version the philosopher accepted. A light-bearing colossus, similar to the one observed, walked at stated periods about the outer walls of the room, and his passage, before first one window and then another, explained the solar years. But the philosopher went further still. In the animacular cosmos there was one feature of superlative abnormity, the clock with its pendulum, its dial, and its hands. Generations of observers had proved beyond question that the pendulum swayed, that the hands crept about the dial, that the phenomenon of the chimes occurred at intervals of roughly approximate equality and that it was at least possible to conceive a relation between these intervals and the procession of the hands. Attention became early riveted upon the clock. The evidences of purpose in creation centred there. The creator who spoke obscurely in his other works seemed in the clock to utter an authentic voice. And theism and atheism ...joined battle on the question of the clockmaker. The animacular Newton was a clockmakerist, ...and he hazarded the bold guess that the Colossus, who carried a lamp around the room, ...would be found to regulate his movements by clock time. Among the pious, the guesses of the philosopher were soon erected into doctrines of the Church. The Colossus of the legend was identified with the sun both with the maker of the clock. The cultus of the clockmaker succeeded in the place of earlier religions, water worship, ancestral worship, and the barbarous adoration of the chimney-piece. To him all virtues were attributed, and all becoming an immaculate behaviour was massed under the rubric of clockmakerly behaviour. The other party cried out the while on animaculomorphism. The philosopher had declared all space to be occupied by water. Nothing was less proved, nothing less probable. Beyond the inner skin of the bottle, water ceased. And if so, where was your clockmaker? Life implied water, thought implied water. No one not living in water could conceive the idea of time, how much less of a clock? Examine your hypothesis, said the a-clockmakerists, and it comes to this. A creature that lives in water living out of water? Can reasonable and immaculate amuse themselves with such absurdities? Or granting the impossible, granting for the sake of argument that life and thought exist beyond the walls of the carafe? Why does not the clockmaker declare himself? It would be easy for him to communicate with an It would have been easy for him when he made the clock to have placed upon the dial intelligible signs, the 47th proposition, for example. Or even had he cared some metre of the flight of time. And instead, at distances grossly approximating to equality, there occur senseless marks, the result probably of ebullition. If, then, a clockmaker exist, he must be figured as a frivolous and malignant wretch who fashioned the carafe, the table, and the room with a single view to gloat on the miseries of an immaculate. Such opinions found a more violent expression in the mouths of contemporary poets. The infamous Ode to a Clockmaker, which shook society, began somewhat thus. Huge are your sins, huge as a whole carafe. Clockmaker, I defy you. Your cruelty is greater than a vase upon the chimney-piece, and round as the face of the clock. You are strong, you boast yourself, you are cunning and contrive timepieces. Vain are your strength and cunning. Let but one right-minded animacule look you in the face. You are confounded in the midst of your implements. You grow pale and conceal yourself in the back shop. It was felt universally the poet had advanced too far. Did a clockmaker exist, it was not to be supposed he could suffer these expressions to pass unpunished. It was to be feared the whole carafe might be involved in his revenge. The poet, after a trial in which he gloried in his horrid sentiments, was condemned and publicly destroyed. And this act of rigour checked for some generations the spirit of free thought. The dawn of the seventh double solar year was anxiously expected. As the moment approached, every telescope in the bottle was directed on the eastern window of the clock. And after the event had taken place, and while the calculations were being prepared, crowds waited at the doors of astronomers, some in prayer, some irreverently betting on the result. It was inconclusive. The clock and the sun were in no precise accordance. It was impossible for the most ardent of the faithful to cry victory. But the discrepancy was small. The most rabid of the free thinkers was conscious of a private doubt. In The Clockmaker Displayed in All His Works, The Clockmaker Vindicated, and True Clockmakerly Science Displayed and Justified, The pious sought to gloss over their disappointment. In works of a different complexion, free thinkers magnified their victory. As the hours passed and generation succeeded to generation, faith was perceived to have been shaken. The belief in a clockmaker steadily declined, and soon the clock itself, with its halting movements and irregular regularity, became a theme for jesters. In the midst of this, the oblong yellow space in the north wall was seen to open, and the clockmaker entered and proceeded to wind up the clock. The revulsion was complete. Animacules of every age and station crowded to the seats of worship, the carafe rang with psalms, and there was no sentient creature from one side of the bottle to the other, who would not have sacrificed all that he possessed to do the clockmaker a service. By the time he had done winding the clock, the clockmaker spied the carafe, and, being thirsty after last night's beer, drained it immediately to the dregs. For three weeks after, he lay sick in bed, and the doctor who attended him had the water supply of that part of town completely overhauled. Like other works, such as Gulliver's Travels, Stevenson creates a parallel world to ours, creating the irony by which we can see our own world from a new perspective. In The Clockmaker, the microscopic world of the animaculae becomes absurdly comic, not just by the image of microbes making exquisitely fine scientific instruments and discussing religious and philosophical issues, But more importantly by our perception of how limited their view of the universe is, from which they try to construct their theories about the nature of the world. From our perspective, their views are bound to be wrong, but from their perspective their theories and beliefs are taken quite seriously. Their views are wrong, even absurd, And yet there is also something admirable about them, as these tiny beings try their best to understand the world they live in, drawing on the only evidence available to them. And given that limited evidence, their conclusions make sense. As much sense, perhaps, as our conclusions from our own observations of our world. The moral point of the fable, as in many other fables, is that it is absurd to treat our own views, or our culture's beliefs, as the only true ones. Our narrow human experience and understanding cannot grasp the large and shifting patterns of the universe. The microbe's belief in a clockmaker who creates and regulates the world makes sense in a limited way, But we know it does not come near the truth. And lest we begin to think that human beings are any better at understanding the world, the final paragraph shows us that the doctor completely misreads the truth of the situation. The doctor reads the situation in the light of the recent discovery that disease can be transmitted by a germ-infested water supply. But the doctor's conclusions are wrong. He has not seen the crucial evidence that it was not the general water supply that was infected, but only the carelessness of the maid who let the stagnant water sit on the table too long. The fable also gives us a kind of allegorical history of Christianity, as church doctrines are developed from the guesses of the philosopher, taking over earlier religions the cult of the clockmaker paralleling Western beliefs about God. The European Enlightenment, arguing against a blind faith in a personified deity, appears here in the A-clockmakerist, atheist, arguments, including parodies of actual 18th and 19th century tracts and books on the subject, dismissing as unscientific animaculomorphism, creating God in their own image. We can laugh at the narrowness of these microbes' pretension to discover how the universe operates. But then again, their conclusions are earnest and not self-seeking, and produce coherent explanations based on the microscopic view of the world. We can laugh too at the doctor, who completely misunderstands the cause of the man's illness. But then again, he too is drawing conclusions in good faith, based on what he knows, and his calling for the whole water system to be investigated, which shows a fine public spirit. These complex responses of ours are themselves a moral to the fable, asking us to balance, at the same time, different ways of looking at the story and at our own lives, laughing at our limitations, but also applauding our attempts, nevertheless, to do as best we can. And that now concludes Series 3 of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts about Robert Louis Stevenson's fables. Stay tuned for a new series coming up soon on Henry David Thoreau and on Ovid's stories of Greek myths, and perhaps also on Homer's Odyssey. See you then.